Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week, we also learned who will be getting those vaccines first. A federal vaccine advisory panel has recommended that healthcare workers and residents of nursing homes be the first people to receive any vaccine that might soon be approved. We also learned this week about an analysis of blood donations that shows coronavirus was infecting people in mid-December of 2019. This was a few weeks before it was officially identified in China and about a month earlier than we saw in the U.S. For more on this, we'll speak to Betsy McKay, senior writer at The Wall Street Journal. So there is an expectation that the FDA will authorize the first vaccine, first two vaccines this month. And so everyone is preparing for that. There's a very limited number of doses. So right now, all of the discussion is who's going to get those first doses. And about 40 million doses will be available, but that's enough for 20 million people because people need two doses. So the whole question is now, particularly with this surge, who do you vaccinate first and how are you going to have the biggest impact? And an advisory panel to the CDC has been discussing this issue for months. They voted yesterday, overwhelmingly, to uh, give those first vaccines to about 21 million healthcare workers and 3 million residents of long-term care facilities. These are the two groups that they have deemed to be most in need of the vaccine and who will have the greatest impact on sort of tamping down or starting to tamp down the spread of the virus. Right. And there's a lot of other people in the conversation, other high-risk populations. There's essential workers, teachers, police people with underlying health conditions. So we had been hearing for a long time it was going to be healthcare workers and nursing home patients, but there's a lot of people in the mix. Obviously, we need to vaccinate everybody. So uh, there's, there's, right. there's a lot no, of potential populations. There definitely is. And it's a, it's a very tough decision because yeah. there are a lot of people in need. I mean, people at high risk, people age 65 and over, I mean, the mortality rates as you go up in age group increases dramatically. So who gets it first? You know, this meeting that they had this week was just about who's going to get those 40 million doses. The next group down will be another debate, essential workers and people over 65 and people who are at higher risk, both older and younger. I mean, all of these people need urgent access to the vaccine. One thing I will say is that even within this top group, this is called phase 1A. There's so many groups are prioritized. They're all group one. It's just like 1A, 1B, 1C. So 1A, you know, initially it was just going to include healthcare workers, then nursing home um, residents were added, and that there has really been a debate, a discussion between who is the greater need of the vaccine first. If you're going to like decide who of those two groups goes first, nursing home residents or healthcare workers, opinions are divided even on that. And also even the rollout with that, too. You know, we're talking about healthcare workers and they're recommending too. you should probably stagger who gets them and when only because people have said there are side effects with these two vaccines. So it might feel pretty crummy for a couple of days. So if they need to call out of work, all that, you know, you have to really approach it in the right way. We did see that the UK approved the Pfizer vaccine. They also said that they're going to be administering this to nursing homes and healthcare workers first as well, and people over 80 as well. Yeah, I mean, so the reason to give it to healthcare workers is um, 
these are people who are are protecting everybody else. So there's there are kind of justice and ethical reasons for giving them to them, and also practical reasons. The justice, the ethical reasons are obviously these are the people who put their lives on the line to save others. Um, the practical reasons are that uh, you need to keep health workers, um, healthcare workers, uh, safe and protected so that they don't get sick, um, and so that you have enough of them. And right now, you know, hospitals across the country uh, in hotspots. Um, and there are many of them. This, this virus is like on the rise everywhere. Um, you know, hospitals are having trouble keeping numbers of staff, and many are actually having to have uh, help employees who have tested positive for COVID-19 but aren't sick. Um, if they've tested positive and aren't sick, they're still um, asked to work because they're so short of, of healthcare workers. So, so that's you know the reason to get them vaccinated so you can have a steady staff, steady, steady. Um, well-protected staff. You also get, um, by, by vaccinating that group, you get a, a, a broad section of the population, older people, younger people, um, diverse population, and you, 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 there are many healthcare workers who are themselves at high risk, so um, there's a benefit to them. The reason for nursing home um, residents is, um, you know, very compelling. I mean, 40% of the deaths are, are among residents of nursing homes. So they are, these are people at the highest risk. One concern that, that some experts have had about them is that um, data haven't been made publicly available yet showing how well the vaccine performs um, in older people whose immune systems aren't as strong as, um, as younger people. So um, it's not that the data doesn't exist, it's just it's not widely available. So no one, you know, people are a little bit, some people are a little bit concerned about right. giving these new vaccines, using a new technology to um, very vulnerable people uh, early on. But they're going ahead, and New York State, for example, has said um, that it's going to pr- put um, nursing home residents first in line ahead of healthcare workers. The other interesting news that came out of the CDC, and this might give a lot of people relief who said, man, I was so sick in early December, mid-December, that I swear I had coronavirus back then. We're starting to learn more about basically that it was around in mid-December in the United States, weeks before it was officially identified in China, maybe about a month earlier than people first said here it was in the United States. And the CDC analyzed blood donations and they found out that some of that blood had antibodies for coronavirus. So what did they do to find this all out? So blood donations aren't normally kept this long, um, but this was a, a group of samples, blood donations, samples from the Red Cross that had been kept for analysis of another virus. And they were repurposed and sent to the CDC for the CDC to analyze for evidence of how early on in the, in the pandemic there may have been cases in the U.S., so those researchers actually found they looked at December and they looked at a period in January and they did find a few cases in December. There is a caveat. There is what's called cross reactivity sometimes with coronaviruses and you can't or with viruses. And um, with some of the samples, it's not 100 percent certain that they were infected with this particular SARS, SARS virus. It might have been another coronavirus. But this group did do um, extensive testing and did find um, um, that there were, you know, some cases and so uh, of this particular virus. So, you know, there's no indication from what they found that it was spreading in the U.S. Um, that early on. These would have been isolated cases, mm-hmm. um, nothing big enough to pick up. And the same in early January. 
so um, and and you know others have been looking at this. It's, it's interesting to to know that you know through the blood supply, you can go back in time and sort of try to piece together what happened. Um, Right. You know, using and, this methodology. And it does raise a lot of questions, though, about the origins of the virus, obviously. You know, if it was circulating a lot earlier than we thought, here in the United States especially, yes. where was that jump? Where did it happen? What states, what locations were these blood samples from where they found out that the coronavirus was there? There are nine states across the U.S. The ones um, where uh, there were some positive samples found in December were all West Coast, California, Washington and uh, Oregon, I believe. Again, very, very few and isolated cases. And so, you know, in January, the samples found in January were more widespread. There was Connecticut. They looked at samples from Michigan, um, you know, a few other states. So it really, it it does show um, or suggest, I should say, that, um, that there were what they would call importations or, you know, separated introductions. There's no indication any of this, that there was actual spread that early on. You know, I guess the obvious question then rises, well, is the virus really from China? And, you know, this is a coronavirus that very closely, you know, resembles coronaviruses identified in the bat population in China. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really raise the question that, oh, maybe this virus came from somewhere else besides China. What it does suggest is that as the, you know, the number of cases was starting to build up in China, there's obviously a lot of global travel. Big lesson here is we're a global world, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and it's, it's, it's not too surprising that there were isolated cases in the U.S. And there have been, you know, studies in, um, that have found cases here and there in, in Europe, one in Germany in late December. Certainly by January, you know, there were, there were cases, more cases in the U.S. Um, than we knew at the time. Betsy McKay, senior writer at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Finally for this week, we're definitely in the holiday shopping season now. And since the pandemic has changed the way everything is done, most people are shopping online and it's making it extra difficult to get those hot items right now. Looking for a PS5 or a new Xbox? Good luck with that. Grinch bots are grabbing them all up. Automated programs are beating you to the punch for the top sneakers, toys, and electronics that are sold online. For more on why these Grinch bots are ruining everything, we'll speak to Teresa Carr, columnist at undark.org. Bots are automated computer programs, and they're set, like you said, to go in and anytime that there's a high demand product with a limited supply, there's going to be a secondary market for that. And as you said, this started kind of years ago with sneakers. Although if you look back in time, you can think this is like an age old thing. You know, it's a supply and demand thing. If you have a hot item, somebody's going to want to get it for as low a price as possible and resell it. So that's exactly what's going on here, except they're using automated computer programs to do it. When I say they, I said these bot operators, these secondary sellers. So these bots go in and, you know, when something hot's going to drop, like a PS5 or the new Xbox, these bots are waiting. And, you know, as much as the cybersecurity experts told me that it's much as 90% of the traffic on that website when there's going to be one of these hot items coming. And remember, wow. the manufacturers and the retailers often announce ahead of time. They say, we're dropping this at 3 p.m. on right. this day. I think the Walmart dropped the PS5s on November 12th. And, you know, all the consumers are waiting. 90% of the bots 
are waiting too, or ninety percent of the traffic are bots <laughs> and that they are, are waiting. And they are definitely faster than you. I was one of those people. Oh, they're way faster. Yeah, I was yeah, one of those yeah, people yeah, yeah. waiting in that line trying to do that. And, yeah, to no avail. You don't stand a chance. I mean, you know, I think some consumers get through. You know, cybersecurity experts told me in a situation like that, you know, as much as two thirds of the purchases may go to bots. So there is some cybersecurity software on a lot of these sites that kind of like eliminate some of these bots, but some of these bots are so sophisticated, they do get through. And yeah, when it's you versus something that's automated that's going through in milliseconds, and you're trying to like, <laughs> even if you've got your credit card right. information ready to go and you're auto-filling, you don't stand a chance. Yeah. And as you mentioned, this has been going on for quite some time. People can just think to when collectibles go on sale, concerts is a huge thing. And then you see the scalpers trying to sell them back again. This has been going on for some time. And for the retailers themselves, there really isn't a lot of incentive to stop this. I mean, the products that they're selling are getting sold regardless. So they're making that money. So their willingness to stop it maybe isn't always there. But a lot of these experts that you spoke to say that they are probably some of the first people in line that should be doing something to stop this. I mean, they would have the most amount of power in stopping it. Certainly, you know, and, and remember, I talked to cybersecurity experts who are also selling services, protecting websites. So I think, you know, in some ways they would say they need another level of security in there. And certainly retailers, there are some things they could do. You know, they don't necessarily have to announce exactly what time. They don't have to hype something to the extent they do. And that might discourage some of the bots that are sitting there waiting. And the other thing they do, by the way, is sometimes go in and hack into the site ahead of time. So they've already got the web address or the URL of the product even before it's made public. So they're already a step ahead of you as soon as that product becomes available. So there are some things retailers can do and they can amp up their security. There's a disagreement about how motivated they are. I mean, there is this fine line between like discouraging your customers, which you, you know, particularly I think smaller retailers are very interested in keeping a loyal customer base. There's that fine line between that and actually building demand, you know, hyping a product, making it exciting to get the newest sneaker or the PS5 or the newest collectible thing. So there's a tension there. And I can't exactly speak to the issue of how motivated they are. When I've reported on this, the retailers, the major retailers I reached out to did not want to talk to me about it. But yeah, certainly one could think that maybe they're not motivated. And I've had security experts say that they maybe are not completely motivated to stop this because they are selling out very quickly. Part of the problem is that the bots are always getting better at disguising themselves. Tell me a little bit about some of the technical things that go on in a website and how these bots work around it. Because I know a lot of people... When you're logging into something, you see that CAPTCHA response, you know, the little I'm not a robot puzzle kind of thing. Basically, how many fire hydrants are in this picture? Things like that. How do they work around all those? If you've been doing this for a while, you've noticed those CAPTCHAs have gotten a little bit harder and trickier over time, right? I don't know if you remember reading wavy words, yes. for example. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and yeah, and so over time, we've been teaching the CAPTCHAs to get better. We as consumers have been you know, working on those and machine learning. AI is going on in the background and the CAPTCHAs have gotten more and more sophisticated, but so have ways to you know, the machine learning used to get around those. Now, one way to get around it, I will tell you, is pretty brute force. And that's just to quickly grab the CAPTCHA, send it, you know, usually outside the U.S. to what's called a CAPTCHA farm. And you have like a whole team of people who are very good at solving these almost instantaneously and send it back. <laughs> I am rolling my so, eyes right now hearing that. I hate to right, hear that right. right now. 
Yeah, but you think about it. I mean, that's probably fairly cheap labor, and that's a very inexpensive way to do this. So when you hear like all the sophisticated AI and stuff, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's brute force that just sends it out to Capture Farm, sends it back, and goes on through the process. But also, I think I cite in my um, story in Undark, you know, there was a study in 2016 where the researchers showed that 70% of the CAPTCHAs that were widely used at that time, AI, just off-the-shelf tools, not anything sophisticated they did, just off-the-shelf tools could easily solve those. So the bots are way past picking out traffic lights and things. (laughs) You still have to do that because it does discourage some of the less least sophisticated bots, and that's probably the most of the traffic. So you are cutting down on a lot of bot traffic by going through those extra steps. But for the ones that really want to get through, they're just as sophisticated as that. It's an arms race. So the bot detection or protection software keeps getting better and uses these machine learning tools to look and, and see that the activity on the site looks like the way the mouse is moving, the way you're clicking through, looks like what a human would do. And then the bots learn to mimic human behavior and it just keeps going. It's an arms race with no end in sight. What about legislation to stop some of this? What about something geared specifically to this? I, I guess there were some members of Congress that introduced a bill a stopping Grinch bots act that would try to help some of this Has any of that got any traction. So stopping Grinch bots has been introduced, I think three years in a row, most recently in 2019 and the democratic representative from New York, Paul Tonko is behind that. And that has not been passed yet. He was also behind a 2016 bill that did get passed on stopping ticket scalping. So there is a precedent for that. That one was passed in 2016. I can't tell you that it's had a huge effect on ticket scalping. I think it's had some effect. I know that the Federal Trade Commission is charged with enforcing that, and they have not yet taken any enforcement actions for that ticket scalping act. So that's in four years. There's been a couple of state attorneys general in New York and Washington that I know have reached settlements with ticket brokers. So, you know, it's maybe done a little The hope is that if this Stopping Grinch Bots Act actually gets passed and maybe in the coming year, that that would maybe take down some of the big operators because a lot of these operators are in the open. The resale market is is in the open. You can buy the products, let's say the sneakers or whatever, but you can also buy the bots. I mean, I can go and buy software if I want to like shop for sneakers myself and I want to use these bots to do that, I can do that. Or if I want to set up a resale business myself, I can do that. So this operates very much in the open. So there is the thought that if there was a law passed, that that kind of practice would be discouraged at the very least, if not some of the illegal activity that goes on. Teresa Carr, science journalist and columnist at undark.org. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. This was fun. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.